0: Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer, and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers. So in the third business design gem, uh, David Schmidt, a business design partner at United Peers, and I discussed four business design topics that we currently find very interesting and just in general I think are important for designers and business designers. At first, we talked about misaligned incentives in many different industries and how these misaligned incentives actually affect the user experience and what we can do about it. We talked about sustainable brands, so how creating sustainable brands and just basically sustainable products could be the next big wave in business innovation. Uh, So we talked about Patagonia as an example here, of course. And we also talked about uh, a question that a lot of entrepreneurs and designers are not asking themselves Enough. which is how big should my product or a company be, right? Because a lot of times we get a feeling that we should, only, we should always and only grow and grow, right? And sometimes this is not the best strategy. So we talked about um, figuring out the best size for your venture or product. And lastly, we also talked about um, corporate innovation. So basically what separates a successful corporate innovation program from the ones that are likely to fail and just one thing before diving into the episode if you want to learn more about business as a designer you should check out um, the website beyondusers.com and there you can find a five day mini mba email course and in these five days you're going to learn five business concepts that are relevant for designers so that is on beyondusers.com And now, without further ado, here's the Business Design Gem 3rd Edition. (laughs) So, in the last weeks, I've spent a lot of time uh, thinking about... I think this is a topic that is very important for designers, and especially business designers, which is just the whole topic of incentives. And what we can see in a lot of industries is that incentives are like fundamentally misaligned and a lot of the problems of these business models and also how customers feel about the product is because of the misaligned incentives. Um, I'll just give a few examples maybe of the industries where I've seen this and then let's talk about the example of a company that I see doing a good job in trying to align the incentives and then let's talk about what we can do about it. I mean, one example, maybe the most prominent one is like healthcare. So it's, it's fundamentally flawed that a doctor in a hospital gets paid when I'm sick. You know, they actually have an incentive to make me even more sick in a way because they only get paid when I get into their door, which is when I'm sick.
1: The interesting thing is in Germany, the health insurance is actually called sickness insurance. (laughs) So it sounds like, okay, they're only caring about you when you're sick. So they're not really going into trying to not um, have you get sick in the first place
0: yeah this is the crazy thing. I mean, I know insurances in u s are thinking about changing this, but it's just so hard. you know how can I pay a hospital or a doctor for keeping you healthy? How do I measure that and this is the problem of measuring and a lot of the a lot of the times I feel like business model defaults to what is easy to measure and what is easy to pay for, not aligning incentives
1: so when you talk about incentives, now you said about talked about doctor and patient. I think it's the same with managers in a in a corporate, so you yes. also try to get incentives so that they work towards the best goal for the company, but then how do you measure it so what are they actually going to achieve and a lot of times these incentives are not so if they really only follow the incentives that can actually be bad for the company
0: yeah speaking of which this this is my next example that i that I want to bring up, which is um this is a typical owner agent problem right so The real estate has a similar problem. So let's say I have a house that I want to sell and let's say it costs 1 million euros and I find an agent and I tell him, hey, you're going to get 5% off off the deal. So obviously for me, having 1 million or 950,000 euros is a big difference, it's 50K. But for him selling it as quickly as possible, that's basically if I just give him 5%, he's going to be more incentivized to just sell it to the first person which is a big loss for me. But for him,
1: he can move on to the next deal. I see two things there. One is he doesn't want to spend money on you because he get a fixed sum. So as soon as he finished, the better. So that's just exactly. that he wants to jump in there. Um, as he wants to get it done as quickly as possible. And the second thing there is where your incentives are the most misaligned. The more you pay, the more um, money he makes because he makes uh, 5% of the selling price. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to look
0: like he's going to want to increase the price to 1.1 million, but actually he's like, yeah, I just want to do it fast most of the time. So that's the problem. And we have this across many industries. Another one could be a lot of just the hardware. If we look at the automotive industry and many other industries, it's like when I sell you a product, is it really in my best interest to sell you the best product that's going to last for 20 years? Or is it my interest to sell you a product that's going to, break down a little bit after two years
1: or maybe the battery is not going to work after two years i will talk about this l- l- later also so i have been talking to a german engineer so germans are uh, famous for their engineering yeah he was talking about a truck and a car so a truck is bought by a company that will last forever and the car he said every time he sees a car he cries these things they could be built to last for hundreds of thousands of kilometers, but they're built so that they break down after 200,000 kilometers because the car manufacturer, he wants to sell you a new car. Yeah. So he's not. he doesn't want this to last forever. Exactly. And um,
0: I mean, we are moving closer now to aligning incentives with uh, like all-inclusive um, rentals where I basically pay one fee. I think Volvo has this where basically I pay, I don't know, 800 dollars or something like that and everything is included insurance uh, maintenance using the car even accessing like bigger car in 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 certain
1: edge cases and then Volvo has an incentive to really create a great car um, yeah I see this totally so the first step is car sharing so now you have a lot of car sharing cars on the streets they belong to the company so they have an incentive to keep them on for as long as possible and that will be even stronger in the age of autonomous driving where there will probably be no private car ownership anymore but all the cars will be owned by bigger companies maybe even the manufacturers and they will have a very strong incentive to let these cars last forever
0: yeah it's really interesting to me like how fundamental changes to business model and a product you can make make just by always asking how can align align incentives and the last example, or maybe the last industry I want to just quickly mention and then give this like a case study of good case study of how you can align incentives is insurance, which is also like fundamentally flawed. So I pay somebody some money upfront if something happens. And then when I try to get money back, it feels like I'm working against them, you know, because I am each time I have a claim towards insurance, I'm effectively decreasing their bottom line, I'm effectively decreasing their profit. And it always feels like a war. Hey, you have to prove you've really done that. I mean, obviously, yeah, because there is a lot of fraud. But one company showed that actually it is possible. So I don't know if you've heard of Lemonade. It's a US-based insurance startup.
1: I think I heard the name, yeah.
0: Yeah, so Lemonade is basically an insurance company for homeowners and renters. So they only specialize in this right now. So And basically, instead of having brokers... They have AI. So you have a bot and you have algorithms. And the way it works is when you have a claim, you actually get this money back in three minutes or less.
1: What is a claim then? So you have an insurance for some home Yeah, problems, let's say
0: something, I don't know, there is a flood or something and you oh just, okay. mm-hmm. yeah, that's certain damage to your apartment or a house. And you just take a picture, it's a chatbot, they, they check it in, with the AI and you get money like in three minutes. So you prepare that's, this. That's great. How do they do that? Right? This is the fundamental thing with aligning the incentives. So where whereas like a traditional insurance basically um, has misaligned incentives. And that's why they actually fight with you. Every time you have a claim, they try to just circumvent that by having aligned incentives. And the way it works is they have a fixed fee, which is you know exactly what their profit slash revenue is. Everything that's above that goes to the reservation for basically damages. Let, let me give you an example. So let's say that, we have, that they have 1,000 customers. And each of that 1,000 customers pays 1,000. Okay, that's a lot. But let's say they have 10,000 customers. Yeah. Each of them pays $100. So that's a million, right? So let's say that their fixed fee is 20% which means this is their revenue. 20% is what they keep regardless of what's
1: happening. So what do they do with the other 800,000? Exactly.
0: So 800,000 is the money that's there if something goes wrong with the apartment of a person so they can basically um, yeah, refund somebody, pay them for the damage. And the way they try to line the sentence is if there is any leftover money, this is not a profit of lemonade. right? So let's say that in year one, they paid out 600,000 uh, dollars.
1: So there are 200000 left. Exactly.
0: So what happens with those 200000 is usually with the traditional insurances, this is their profit. This is the the best profit. <laughs> and then what happens here is all of it goes to non-profit that we as customers chose.
1: Ah, so we don't get the money back, but we can decide which charity it goes yes. to. Yes. Ah, oh, okay. Exactly. And this is how they
0: align incentives is. And, and this also goes in line with the kind of new... Millennial caring so much. I mean, having different values and really like caring about certain nonprofits. You know, like they really found like a, the right candy here in terms of the nonprofits that the money goes goes to if if there's not
1: enough claims. What happens if there are claims for more than eight hundred thousand euros? I think they did the math, and this. <laughs> yeah. Are there f- reinsurers involved that they somehow reinsure the claims with I will, I'm not company. sure about reinsurers, but I think their whole—I mean, this is their business—to do the calculation
0: right. So I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing there yeah, is some sorry. leftover mm-hmm. money. Yeah. But it, it, I just find it like a really interesting example. Like, it is not easy. Definitely not easy to do this. It really takes fundamental change. I mean, if we look at the three components of this example that I really like, is one they use a completely new technology, which means they've changed a the cost structure. It is cheaper yep. for them to yep. run this business than. Typical insurance. Second is, by having different technology and aligning incentives, they have a completely different business model. And the third is, they have a different brand. You need to have a different brand if you want to run a business like this. And you probably target different people. You're hoping that people who are fraudulent, who just basically are trying to scam insurances, that they are not... I mean, first of all, that they don't even uh, decide to, 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 to join your program or to to become your customer but second of all actually they claim that their ai their
1: algorithm is better at detecting fraud than people so i guess they need a lot of branding and marketing and they also need a change in customer behavior so it's a very different way of okay i have an app now and do my claims instead of you have your personal um broker that you can talk to and that helps you guide you through the process and stuff
0: yeah it's very different but just, just imagining how much better business each company could be just by lining these incentives is really exciting to me. It's, yeah, I just, I just hope more <laughs> startups would do it. Because, not, you know, like even freelancing, it's easy to get paid if you just sell your time. But it's so much more...
1: No, it's exactly it, the same. So It's exactly the same, yeah. The longer it takes you to finish a task, you're basically paid better
0: yes exactly instead of being paid for the impact you're making you're being paid for the time which sounds good on the short term but actually on the long term if you're working with good companies and if you really want to make an impact then
1: you know which brings us back to the beginning so how do you measure things so time is easy to measure impact is very difficult to measure
0: yeah cool so let's let's see what you prepared David today my topic
1: uh the first, the first thing I want to talk about is um, summarized best in one sentence. Sustainable is the new digital. Sexy. <laughs> so I think there are two nice words in there. One sustainable, one digital. So digital, um, like got famous 10 years ago, was very unknown. So it's not clearly defined. So what is it actually? And the same is happening now with sustainable. So what is sustainability in the first place? So one or two things you can look at is the sustainable development goals of the United Nations. So they have, a, they have a set of 17 things where they say this is sustainable. So this is a way you can look at another thing is the economy um, for common good. That's also a set of principles that say if you as a company or as a person want to be sustainable, these are guidelines that you can follow and um, what i think is happen, what is happening now or what i see where i see the starts of um, or the beginnings of what is happening now just as big companies 10 years ago started wondering about what is digital and why is it getting important with the industry with our customers the same thing happens with sustainable now so it has been um, the word has been around for very long that's also why it's not so clearly defined you have heard it probably in school talking about sustainability but i think now it gets it will get more important also in the wider wider realm of um economics and for for mainstream companies
0: basically so before you go further i'm just curious like do you feel sustainable this trend is going to have the same effect on business as the digital had because digital fundamentally changed like the cost structure, the distribution channels, the business models, the products, like everything. And when I think about sustainable, I almost see it as a thing that is, uh, that some people, some companies even try to just add on top. Like, oh, this is something to just add on top. We are sustainable because we, you can also recycle, you can bring your clothes back and we're going to give you
1: new ones. So for the First thing, yes, I think a lot of um, companies, just as with digital, just use it as PR. So look, we're doing our normal business and then we put some innovation there. So we are digital. And with sustainable, yeah, we write a sustainability report and we do some greenwashing. So I think it's just as with digital, some people just do it for PR or for show-off. And in terms of changing... I think it might even be the change might be even more drastic than with digital because digital changed it in the on the economic sphere so talking about profit talking about revenue but sustainability is about what we call the triple bottom line so one is profit um so that's uh, the things that companies are already doing but the other ones are planet so thinking about the environment changing um how how you're using resources stuff like that and the third one is people so the social the social impact of your business and i think these three um three things so the triple bottom line profit planet people if you look at your company and try to integrate that or think about your company in terms of these three things you fundamentally have your have to change your business model and even more so than just switching from traditional to digital. Mm.
0: so do you have any good examples of
1: companies who do that um, I the company I want to talk about is Patagonia um, it's an outdoor it's an outdoor clothing company it's over 40 years old have a thousand have a thousand employees so um, it's a company that's been in the market for a long time and they have success so i think they have yeah 200 million of revenue um and one of their claims is they're a sustainable company and they want to be a successful sustainable company so that other people come see that they're successful and start to copy them so they have a very mission-driven they're very mission-driven company that even wants others to to follow their example um and the one of the main or one example where they was where very um very you can see very well what they're about they um, made an advertisement that showed one of the jackets so uh, maybe you know it the uh, black friday one the black friday one where they said uh, don't buy this jacket so on black friday they put uh, in a national newspaper they put a picture of a jacket looked like a normal advertisement but ahead it's over it it said don't buy this jacket so they basically ask you to um, stop consumerism. Don't follow like what all everybody else does in Black Friday, but don't buy the thing. It's a bit cynical, though, right? Because <laughs> a lot of people bought that jacket. <laughs>
0: so is it a PR stunt also from their side? You know, like how do you really recognize a company that is sustainable from the one that's just trying to look like one?
1: So I think. Um, also, if you look at sustainable companies and want to understand what are they doing differently, there are, or what are the benefits of being sustainable, there are different things. So one is certainly, it's also a branding, marketing, PR thing. So if you position yourself as sustainable, you reach a certain customer group and they buy your products because they identify with you. Um, another thing is, it's also... Not so much to to customers or consumers, but more inward towards your employees. It's also a great thing for employer branding. So, if if I believe in the mission of my company, I'm happy to work there, and it's easy for Patagonia to find to find employees. Um, but there are things that are go more into the business model. That is, for example, how you think uh, about your supply chain, or how do you think of your of the way you use resources. And then we go come back a, a bit to what we were talking about before, so uh, the idea of circular economy. So, yeah. If you're if you don't produce something so that you just sell it and the um, if it breaks, the earlier it breaks, the better for you because then they buy again. But instead, you think about how can I make my things durable? And then maybe even how can I profit from durable goods?
0: Yeah, I think this is where this sustainable topic really gets close to also the the business model innovation. Because if you just use the same business model of selling things, of course you're going to be worse off. Because if I create a great jacket that's going to be fashionable for 25 years and actually going to last for 25 years, then I'm just going to sell you one jacket in 25 years, which is not good lifetime value for a customer. So that's why you need a different business model. This is where I think this. Circle economy comes into place uh, and, and new business models. Like, I think there's one company in in uh, Netherlands that actually lets you rent jeans. You know, like you rent jeans yep, yep. per month and then you get new ones each year. And this is kind of a way then to think about I don't own these things, so um, I'm just going to rent them, but they're going to be great new basically every year. And a company has incentive to actually make great jeans
1: so two things that patagonia does to uh that respect one is they don't really create fashion items so they the products you can wear year after year after year so it's not like they're in fashion this year and you have to get a new one next year so that is that's is totally in line with what you said and the second thing is they build a platform for second-hand patagonia clothing so even if you don't if you don't need your Patagonia jacket anymore you can put it onto a dedicated market which some quality standards where other people can buy then secondhand Patagonia stuff so it they really put um, effort into that their stuff get used as long as possible I think they're even selling like a, a sewing kit or like a fix kit yeah. where you basically yeah. can fix your clothes and stuff yeah so they are they have different, so that is, that is this idea of business model innovation by sustainability. So you think about, okay, I want to be a sustainable company. I want to meet, or I want to think about my triple bottom line. And then you think about how do I have to change my business model to get there? And then one thing that I identify is durability or being able to wear our clothes longer. And then they think about what does it need, so a second hand platform for clothes, a sewing kit, so ways also um information on how can you treat your clothes so that they last longer and this is all this is um all aligned with with what they what they want to do and one thing also that
0: uh, designers and business designers can 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 do to help customers realize the, the benefits of this type of products also just start showing the price in a different way so if you still want to sell the same thing is instead of saying hey this this t-shirt costs 60 bucks it's like okay this shirt costs 60 bucks but you're gonna wear it for 10 years or maybe five years or whatever and you basically show them hey this is much cheaper purchase than going to h&m or zara or any of these fast fashion companies, where you maybe just buy something for a month, and even though it's 20, 30 bucks, you're not gonna then not wear it after a month. So, you know, even how we message these
1: products and how we talk about them can help then drive the consumer behavior. I think that idea has been there for a long time, and this I think is also one of the um, one of the challenges that you have. So, if they compare two pants and one is cheap and one is more expensive so they have to um how do you how do you communicate it exactly and just an idea that's coming to my mind now why do you why do they have to pay the 60 euros up front so if you think they will wear it for three years why not let them pay like 20 euros each year
0: yeah definitely that's an even better uh <laughs> better example
1: yeah that that could be that could be a starting point um for thinking about okay how can we make this possible yeah definitely okay and just like that um, I think looking at sustainable companies and looking at the idea of sustainability you as a traditional company can draw a lot of inspiration Um, what can I do differently how can I change my business model Um, so to be more sustainable and how what parts of my business model have to uh, do I have to adapt to somehow get there Cool.
0: So, uh, moving on. Um, so the second thing I wanted to talk about is something called a right sizing. So not a downsizing, not scaling, it's right sizing. So basically what it tries to communicate is finding the right size for your product, venture company, because I think especially now we live in a time where it feels like there is no choice. You have to grow. And if you went to a business school, um, it's never a question whether you should grow or not. Like if you can grow, you should grow. It's better, you know, because economy should also grow. But I feel sometimes for businesses, this should be a question or adventure designers, it should be a question of how big should we be to actually achieve our goal or mission, whatever it is. I mean, obviously if your goal is just to have the biggest company, then yeah, the answer is Grow. but if you have like a mission or like a certain impact you're trying to have on a certain community then you really have to ask like how big do i want to be
1: so i think there's the sense of go big or go home so if you also we were taught that if you don't grow you're going to die but I think it's also a um, question of the ownership structure. So if you are venture capital backed or if you have some yeah. shareholders in there that basically want to retu- have to return on their, on their investment, you're somehow on this, on this trajectory.
0: Yeah, I mean, as soon as you take the outside investment, then you basically, your product is the company because then you want to sell the company itself. Not, it's not about the product anymore for those investors, obviously.
1: And if you have a mission, um, I think it's hard. Or if you see your business is doing very well and you have a mission, like just with the Patagonia guy, he wants to set an example so that other can follow him. So the bigger he gets, the more influence he also has, and the more people like can see his mission. Yes, but look, if if if, if they would go too far with this idea, you know, if
0: they would become maybe mainstream or too mainstream, they could overextend their brand in a way that it would not look genuine anymore and it would actually back uh, backfire to them so i think this is exactly i mean yeah it's a big company 200 million so i'm not saying you should be like small like you shouldn't even think about having millions in revenues but it's like what is the right size of company for us because the same way you said before like you're gonna die if you don't grow a lot of times you die because you grow There are a lot of companies that overextend their capabilities. You know, like you are right now, we are in a great, great economic situation where everything is growing and you feel like, hey, it's going to grow for the next 15 years. And now you invest in, let's say you have a factory and you want to increase this, your capabilities. And now you start investing in this. And then uh, two years later, there's a crisis. And now actually, because of that extension, you actually have to close the shop because you can't pay your loans anymore.
1: And that happens to a lot of companies. I think it's also a personality thing. So um, the the Patagonia founder he also wants to send this message out. Maybe not everybody, not everybody wants to do it. So um, the German sociologist Weber, when he was looking at the beginnings of capitalism and where it comes from, he saw saw it coming from the protestant religion saying okay there are some similarities that have people just want to achieve more so and uh, the question is if there are some if there's some way to say okay this is enough for me so there are cultures where people if they have a way running business that goes very well um, they don't they don't go on so even i have a colleague who's freelancing and he he worked for three months And then he said, and then after, afterwards I asked him, what are you doing? He said, "Mm, nothing. I earned good money now and now I can relax (laughs) because I reached the goal for this year. So I don't, I I decided how much money I need. I got that money and now I'm good. And then next year I will start working again.
0: Yeah. I, I see this, you know, as a business designer, like as an inspiration, to really think about this more because i feel like most of the time we don't even think about it there's a spreadsheet and you just try to make it look every year it's bigger but i think there is this point where you should ask like how, what is the size we should aim for for different reasons like what is the impact we're trying to achieve how would employees like to be treated like it's not the same to work in a company that has 500 people uh compared to maybe 50 you know where everybody can get on a bus so there are a lot of really important implications of of growing Actually, the whole reason I'm talking about this is because I was recently in Japan and one of the things that struck me the most were, were their restaurants. Restaurants, so, so. restaurants mm-hmm. yeah. They have amazing food, obviously, and amazing restaurants. I even looked it up and out of the first four cities with the most Michelin stars, three are from Japan. So the first one is Tokyo. The second one is Paris. That makes sense. And then you have Kyoto and Osaka. <laughs> okay it's just unbelievable i think even tokyo itself has more than 200 michelin star restaurants and um if, if you go and I, I tried to visit a few of them obviously can't get in but um, what you can see is actually a lot of them are really small restaurants and you look 10 basically they can only see like 10 people and not just that but they also are open only like two hours per day
1: so how many people <laughs> how many customers do they have a day
0: yeah for, for like for example for for this one guy he only has like ten restaurants uh, ten guests per day so that's just dinner
1: so ten guests one shift that's it
0: that's it because they and i mean when you go look into the culture right and this is another thing I really liked is they take it really seriously even like the minor jobs like how to prepare the rice for sushi which is for us like yeah it's just rice but then we the i mean how long you have to train to become Uh, a rice master if I can call it this way it's just unbelievable right I mean the level of detail they go to create this um, relatively simple dish for some people um, it's just amazing right so they focus so much on the product and the impact they want to have on that one uh, customer then 10 customers each night they don't even think about extending so because obviously as, as a westerner you get in there and you're like hey why don't you open and they just shop next to it and maybe extend and have 50 people every night but it's just not the way they think and there's something about it that i really like you know like the the depth of the impact for one person not
1: getting for the quantity of having so and so many people so they don't expand because that would reduce the quality or because they are happy with the size and they don't need more or I think what it's both
0: it? combination of both. I think first of all they are happy with the size, It's just enough for them to to um, buy the, the the raw materials of the food that they like. So they really invest a lot of in getting the raw materials that have high quality. And having additional restaurant would mean you need to hire, train more people. And uh, as a main chef, then it means maybe you're not in the touch with all of them because in this one where you have just ten people, like the main chef can actually. Put the sushi in front of you, huh. like if you have huh. fifty, that's not gonna happen anymore um so again, there's a little bit of this romantic
1: idea, but there is something that also we can learn out of it, you know, and do you see it only in restaurants or is this a thing that's they are happening happening also in different kind of enterprises?
0: yeah, I mean uh, obviously I only saw the things that are kind of you know on the streets, mm-hmm. but you could see the same culture also in in different uh in, in different type of stores even if you go and buy like a ceramics you still don't get the feeling like they are really trying to overextend themselves they're like really really even when they talk about this product there's so much uh, uh proud they're so proud of it uh that they really they're not so much thinking about really in,
1: enlarging the operations they're more like how can i work on my craft so I see some similarities with German Mittelstand, so the German medium-sized companies that are somewhere in the countryside. They're Usually they're not in the big cities. And they have, a, have found a niche where they're basically world market leader. So they're quite small companies, so the maybe less than 500 people usually. So in my home village, there's actually a company, I think they have 120 people, and they're world market leader for... Programming um, glass cutting machines. So it's a very yeah. niche, very yeah. niche topic. But they, if you look at their, if you if you look at their um, balance sheet or look at their numbers, they're investing a lot of money in R and D. So they really try to stay um, on top, like in terms of product leadership. But they really focus on that niche, and they're not saying, "Okay, now I want to build the biggest company out of that." But they're very happy in doing this thing and doing it very well yeah there are a lot of parallels the challenge or
0: i mean i'm glad you brought the middle stunt up because there is a, a big challenge they're having is they are as you said yourself they're a company usually between 100 to 500 employees and they're really niche and they're the best of it and but most of them create products and i think that a lot of them feel like the pressure from especially now chinese factories because if if, if there's no this, if there's no, I mean, what the restaurants are selling is also the story around it and having just 10 seats yeah. kind of works yeah. in their favor. So with having 500 people being focused on one very niche product that maybe now somebody in China is has copied and maybe made even better, I think they're even more exposed because of that. This is the challenge of these, of these companies in between also. So even the right sizing is very hard to get right.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just thinking so with with growing you also automatically you branch out into different fields and then if one of them or even your original thing didn't doesn't work anymore you can you have different options so but with the if you're so focused this thing has to work and pivoting is difficult
0: i think one i mean one crucial ingredient of this right sizing is is definitely trying to really create a story around it and maybe play on this as your strength you know that's why we see a lot of Mittelstand now venturing into services because with services you are then not just selling like a product but you're also going directly to the consumer and you are then trying to create something
1: around the product yeah um, so this kind of branding thing I think it's easier with consumer products. Mittelstand is also a lot of B2B stuff. And then you tell them a story and they say, okay, very interesting. Now show me the numbers and how much does it cost. So yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, if you have a product that you
0: can sell and direct to consumer, then yeah, then that's it. But a lot of them have the product that they can sell directly to consumer. Then this comes to play. Mm -hmm. They have a product that that they already could have sold direct to consumer, but they chose not to so far.
1: Hmm, yeah okay
0: anyway that's my rant on right sizing i just i just want us to have more discussions about the sizing because a lot of times it's not even a question and i think it should be a question for a lot of projects you know even if it's not a company you're thinking of it's like a project that you're having within the company what is the right
1: size i also see it like um if you know what you want it's easier to get there and then maybe it makes also sense to stay that size sometimes you just grow because you're not sure what what your mission is or what you want to achieve and if you don't know what to do go for the money (laughs) like yeah this is this is then the same thing on company
0: scale but i think uh this nicely also ties into your second thing you wanted to discuss about we had a very nice uh mixture of things today they're kind
1: of very much related
0: we didn't even uh we We didn't plan for that
1: (laughs) so uh, my next my next topic is about corporate innovation so um, the question about so we've been just talking about German Mittelstand so how do you get innovative so you've been doing something very well for for a long time and now digital comes and you have to innovate or next step sustainability will come and then you will have to innovate question is how are you going to do this Um, and I want I want to talk about one program where I think they're doing it quite well and some specifics about there. But first I want to talk about some problems that you have as a traditional company doing innovation um, there. I see that you're following different goals there. So why do you do innovation in the first place? So we've, we've talked about um, what I call innovation theater. So you do innovation just for PR reasons. To impress um, your board. So your board said we have to do something with innovation. And then you say I founded this innovation lab. Look they're They're sitting in a very hipster yeah. city doing <laughs> new stuff. It makes for a very nice picture in the annual report. To yes, convince your yes, stockholders. Yes. That. And then sometimes it's also a case of what I call corporate mimicry. So you see all the others are doing it so i also need to do it obviously but there could also be different um different reasons we talked about employer branding before so if you say we are an innovative company we do this um we also try to attract new talent then this might be you do innovation basically for employer drain, train uh branding another que- another thing could be that you want to train your people so you notice that your people have a very different skill set and even a different mindset and you need a new one and then you say okay let's do innovation and go for this thing and this is this is related to um, for me a cultural change so the way um, companies have been working for the last 20 years will probably not be the way it will be working for the next 20 years so they also has to be a change in how do we do things how quickly do we decide what kind of people do we get on how do we um do with do with hierarchies and all these things um startups usually don't have to care so they have one goal they want to make their customers happy and they want have one measurement so do they have a successful business Mm -hmm. and if a corporate does innovation it seems like they want to do the same. So they want to make the customer happy and they want to have a business. But at the same time, they're also following all the other goals.
0: Yeah. It's much more complex, right? It's, it's not just about, you know, having the revenue and making it. I mean, it's also, even if you have a new idea and startup, like it has to be big enough to even matter,
1: yeah, because yeah.
0: for for uh, again about right sizing for for somebody just starting a startup they might be happy with ten million revenue and just a company that's worth like ten million dollars but for okay to take I don't know Adidas or um, IBM IBM for as an example right for them this is just like a rounding error do we want to have a
1: company that's so they they don't get moved if it's not I don't know a hundred million Yes. so it doesn't it doesn't make sense to start the corporate engine thinking about a problem if there's not enough money behind that yeah. because just on the way getting there, they already have burned so much that there's nothing nothing left. Exactly. <laughs> and then there's also corporate politics and that gets us back to the, the topic we were talking in the very beginning, so incentives. Who in the corporate is actually incentivized to do um, innovation? Usually, there's a lot of risk involved and who's who's paid for risk? So... You don't. you Usually, you make a corporate career by not making mistakes. So you don't have to. It's good if you have some if if you have some achievements, but it's more important that you don't make any errors. So their culturally, people in their are um, programmed to not make mistakes and to not take risks.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like there are a lot of issues and problems for <laughs> corporates to innovate i mean which is what we can see also so is
1: there a solution <laughs> uh, i think there are a lot of um ways that they are trying to do it so most of them or what we've seen in the recent years was that they were founding hubs and labs accelerators and incubators or corporate vcs and i think nobody found the silver bullet yet so everybody's trying some things and some work some work less um I want to talk a bit about Audi Denkwerkstatt. So it's a it's basically an innovation um, program by Audi, the car manufacturer, that has been in uh, that has been active for two and a half years. They're actually in Berlin, so they're sitting in the same building that we're recording this podcast in. Yeah. Um, and they, I have the feeling they, their program has some ingredients that um, look like it could get. That they that they have a possibility to some produce some successes. Um, one of them is that they have um, they combine some of the goals that you usually have with um, with innovation or with corporate innovation. So they have an aspect of training where they get people they have they're sitting in Berlin um, they get people over from the headquarter for six months that they kind of train in new methodologies and mindset. So you have this aspect of training and you have this aspect of culture change because after six months they sent them back and then they kind of um, use, this, use this new ideas also in, a, in the headquarter. And um, what they, they achieved even to be seen as a career step internally so people want to come to berlin to mm. do this program so they integrated quite well with with the structure so far yeah
0: that's a big one i mean you said it before right um i also worked on a on a, on a similar project and the big problem with the this innovation lab and labs in general was that It almost felt like an outlet for those who failed, like in the mothership, like in the headquarters, in the main companies. Like, oh, you you don't fit here, so maybe just go into the lab and maybe try to figure it out there. And that creates like a culture where it feels like if I go there, people will think that I was not successful here. And that's a big problem. So, but if you make it as a career step, like, oh, that's actually cool that you've done that because then you can also get further in your current role, then I think it's a big plus.
1: I think that's uh, this this the you're on to my, my second topic. So what is the position of the of this innovation unit itself in the in the big corporate? Is it just we send people there that don't fit here and then once they are there they do their own stuff and they don't try to um communicate it back to headquarter? And with um Audi Denkwerkstadt they have a very good um they have a very good relationship with headquarters, so they put the energy into bringing leadership from headquarters over explaining what they're doing, doing a lot of internal communication, trying to uh, get across what what are they, what is their uh, how they work, and why they do it this way. And they also make sure to have business support early. If they develop new ideas, they try to find which other business units that. Um, that could be interested in that thing and then integrate it back into the company.
0: Do you happen to know what happens in those cases? Does that mean that somebody who worked in the innovation lab, if they find a partner inside a company, does that mean that they they go back to that business department
1: or do they create like a separate entity? Like what is the process there? So um, there are basically two ways. One is if there's a business unit that's interested it will be part of the business unit and the team can go there or not but the idea lives on and the business unit supports the idea finances it, and develops it Mm. and if the idea or the the idea doesn't fit into the if it's too far away from the from the core business there's also the possibility to to spin it out and to um to have an own company so one case we have in berlin here is chargery which is a service that for uh, Electric car sharing vehicles, they provide a service to charge them. That was also, uh, I think that was even the first spin-out out of this program. Just, just uh, hearing you talk about this also, uh, I, uh,
0: it reminded me of the topic that is super important for designers. It's also like the organizational design. Like really understanding the company that you're in or you're working for as a consultant, what kind of business units do they have? Who is running what? Who is incentivized for what? Who has the money to support certain projects? Where is my project going to live? Who I can reach out to to get buy-in? I think it's super important.
1: And that usually is very difficult as an external person because people don't tell you. So this is what you build up in an internal role over years. And so you also, if you have this kind of innovation unit, you need people in there that have this knowledge so they know who is incentivized how what are the relationships internally where do i have to go when i have a have a certain problem that's completely right what frustrates me is that
0: a lot of designers don't even take the annual report from the company which for Audi is amazing by the way it's really really nice and you can just read it like read it through and you just skim it through and you can see what the business units are you can see that somebody deals with this and that i don't know the details obviously but like just by reading this document you can quickly just get an overview you're like obviously, you don't know who the person that's really important in that business unit is, but by knowing actually, oh, actually there are four business units, and then there this this one that connects
1: all of them. I think is super important. It's a good starting point for me. That is the question of context. So if you go into a task, you just get a, you just get a brief and you start it. You only can get so far, but you have to take into account the context and see how uh, things around me are going to affect me. That in the first place they don't see to have a direct connection but if you dive into that there is there might be either uh, a challenge ahead that you don't see now or somebody having influence on the things you're doing or there might even be um opportunities that you that are not obvious but if you maybe talk to the right person they can help you a great deal talking to the right person that's that's the key I
0: mean, one thing that we've done uh, on projects is looking ins. Have you heard of this term ever? Looking ins? Looking ins. Looking ins. Yeah, it's looking in. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's a method. um, Yeah, it's basically just doing the same interview you would do with a customer is doing with internal stakeholders, mm -hmm. right? When, When starting a project if you actually, I call it business empathy. Mm-hmm. So basically having empathy for, for the business oh, side. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So talking to stakeholders from different business units, talking to stakeholders um, that are uh, directly affected by what you're working on, understanding their challenges and understanding their metrics and understanding their incentives. You know, like doing these, even five interviews, just 30 minutes, going for a lunch with someone can help you a lot to know what language to use at the end when you present something and also to design a better thing that's more feasible and viable
1: yeah totally yeah so uh, the the thing i see is you have to um get the people talking to you Uh that's that's <laughs> one thing and second what you usually what helps me a lot is intuition so sometimes i have the i have a very very slight feeling that i mm, maybe this department could i have the feeling they could be involved and then follow this intuition and find out where, where it's coming that's from. interesting do you feel like th- that's the
0: intuition that you get over time or is it just something that anyone else anyone of us could get a sense of if we just turn on the in- intuition are we talking about who is the right person to talk to or
1: for example that yeah. could, that could be one thing um so I think a great deal of it is experience so having been there several times and then knowing, that there could be a connection, but another thing is also um having having some internal like mental structure thinking okay, this usually there are these kind of connections. let's check it against the the current reality. so I think intuition comes from from experience, but you can you can certainly get there faster by yeah you know, can you give me right?
0: one example of you said there are usually some connections da, 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 that you make in your mind? Anything that comes to mind, obviously you don't have to share the names, just anything that will maybe help
1: make at least one connection. So when I have the feeling I'm working on a project and the, the or I was once working in a project and the person I've been talking to, I tried to get some numbers from them and I didn't get the right numbers. And then I had the feeling he also didn't have them and maybe he <laughs> didn't have enough power to get them. So, I tried mm. another way to um so talk to a um to his manager or even a skip manager and then enter controlling over him and getting these getting the right numbers from there. Got it, yeah that's also
0: what you i think you mentioned briefly before is do you have enough power to ask for these numbers like if your yeah. project is really yeah. small, sometimes you feel like you might be wasting somebody's time by asking for these numbers but I think just trying is super important. Just trying to get those numbers at the end. Or numbers or whatever you need, like reports, industry reports, data, secondary stuff. Because companies usually have a lot. You know, as a designers we usually come in and like, oh let's just do everything from scratch. Like I think reusing
1: that, what I already have is super important. That was a big thing so when I was uh, when I was working with designers, I again and again saw the, the tendency to Let's open a blank page and start here, and I was like, there has been done so much. I know of some, and there probably have been done more. Let's look into the context first and learn from the mistakes other yeah. projects have mm-hmm. done. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean having a
0: blank slate is cool when I think first you still need to know what has been done, then having a blank slate is like kind uh, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool, um that's it, right? yeah. Okay, thanks, David, for preparing this and for the discussion.
1: Yeah, thanks, Aaron, for having me.
0: Cool, so that was all in today's episode. If you have any comments, if you disagree with us, if you agree, if you want to add more examples um, based on the discussion we had with David, just reach out to us. You can do that uh, either on Twitter or on LinkedIn so you can find these links on the beyondusers.com slash podcast. And then you can find my handle and also David's handle. Cool, that's all. So enjoy your day.